Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another SECPA session. During this time of social and physical distancing, SECPA believes it's important to keep engaging with the public on issues of the day, and in order to do so, we are very thankful for the continued support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight, and the Lethbridge Herald. The topic today is the Politics of education in Alberta. Is our current government's approach to education encouraging privatization of schools? And we have with us today um, Bridget Sterling from Edmonton. Bridget Sterling is a PhD student in the University of Alberta's Department of Education Policy Studies, where she is interested in children's rights and the politics of childhood. Her doctoral research focuses on educational reform movements and education law and policy in Alberta. Um, Bridget also holds an MA in Intercultural and International Communications from Royal Roads University. In an, in, and in addition to her doctoral studies, Bridget serves as an Edmonton Public School Board trustee. Thank you, Bridget, for joining us today, and we look forward to your talk. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, so first of all, I want to I want to acknowledge today um, that I do I live and I work in Treaty Six territory, uh, and that um, part of how I see my obligation under that treaty is to uphold the commitments um, that we've made within those treaties, and uh, that I'm committed every day to working on reflecting on those commitments in my academic and political work. So. Just wanted to make note of that today. Uh, so to start with, I think it's um, helpful to think about in when, we, when we think about the growing privatization of education in Alberta, it's helpful to start a bit with maybe how we got here because um, Alberta, I think from the very beginning has had an education system that is um, quite diverse, we could say. <coughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Um, so. Alberta's never had a thank you. Alberta's never had a single unified public education system. Uh, so when we go back to the very beginning of the province in 1905 with the Alberta Act, um, which is our provincial constitution and foundational document, Alberta has had two kind of parallel education systems. And so initially, initially these were denominational schools. So there were two forms. There was um, there were Protestant schools and Catholic schools. Um, so the public school generally was the school that was associated with the majority faith in a community. So across most of that province, those were um, Protestant schools. Um, the separate division would have been for the minority faith group, which in most communities was Catholic, although in a few communities, some um, Catholics were the majority group. And so we saw Catholic schools as what would have been thought of as the main or public school division. Um, but over time, what we saw was Protestant schools were sort of the multi-denominational schools and also the place where non-Christian children ended up going usually. Um, and so they eventually became kind of a secular school division. So um, they led us to the large, this leads us to the largely secular public school divisions and then the Catholic separate divisions we see across Alberta today. There are some interesting legacies of this history in our public education system in Alberta. So to this day, um, under the Education Act um, and uh, uh, the um, Alberta Act, uh, school prayer continues in Alberta. So you'll see in some parts of Alberta, the Lord's Prayer is recited even in public schools daily. 
but we usually think of the public school as the default um, unaffiliated public choice um, that anyone in a community is able to attend. Still, um, under provincial law, it's important to know um, both public and separate school divisions are considered equivalent as, as forms of public schooling, and they're funded using the same funding formulas. So they're treated the same. Further, what we see happening over time um, is that we see constitutional protections begin for francophones in Alberta. And so um, this was a long battle. Um, there's a fascinating history of the fight for francophone education in Alberta. Um, that's sort of separate from our conversation today, but it's very important. Um, and what we see then is following on Section 23 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which guarantees language rights, um, Alberta ends up adding first the right to francophone education um, and then the right to separate francophone school boards following a really long battle that ended finally in 1993 with the creation of francophone boards. And so these francophone boards um, operate both public and Catholic schools in most parts of the province. Um, they're French language schools for um, French language speakers. Um, so they, um, you know, they come into being more recently and they become a third form of public school. So publicly funded boards are required to offer programming to all of their resident students. Um, and that depends on which type of board they are, who counts as a resident. So for public boards, that's students within a geographic region. Um, for Catholic divisions, there's that geographic boundary, but then additionally, um, it's families who are identified as Catholic and there's lots of ways that people are identified as Catholic. Um, and then francophone boards, uh, students who meet eligibility under Section 23 of the Charter. Um, divisions can additionally make exceptions to allow non-resident students, um, but that's always at the school division's discretion. Um, but generally, the public school division is considered sort of the, the default option for most families. So we, we're up to three types of schooling in Alberta already, right? So we've got um, three forms of publicly funded school boards in Alberta. So these are publicly funded, publicly elected school boards. So the next type of choice we start to see emerge is, um, is private schooling. Um, so obviously private schools have a long, long history. Uh, before the existence of public schools, you know, any sort of school would have been considered a private school. But in Alberta, when we talk about private schools, I think we need to talk really significantly about how private schooling has become a form of education that gets public funding, which often surprises people from the rest of the world, um, you know, or in even other parts of Canada. Um, Alberta funds our private schools more than any other part of the country. Uh, and in places like Ontario, uh, private schools don't get any public funding, so they get zero percent. So this is often confusing to people. How do you call something a private school when it gets public funding? Um, but it's important to understand how we got here. Is this representative in a lot of ways of how school reform movements have emerged in Alberta education? So up until 1996, uh, private schools were not officially recognized under Alberta law. Um, and or in 1946, um, we see uh, the Manning government um, bringing private schools in under government regulation. And so for the next 21 years, private schools operate without any public funding. Um, but in 1967, again under Manning, 
um, Alberta begins to fund private schools. Uh, at first, a, a relatively small amount. Um, so it's $100 per student. Uh, that's about $750 in today's dollars. And as we go through this, we'll see how that has grown significantly and you can compare. Uh, so over the following decades, um, that funding climbs. And what we see is um, in 1974, the Lougheed PCs uh, increase it to 33% of the public per student grant. Uh, and then a year later in 1974, or sorry, a couple of years later in 1976, we see it up to 40%. Uh, it grows to 50%. And then in 1997, um, despite a significant division even within the Progressive Conservative Party and the caucus, um, party members vote against this in a convention vote, um, but the Klein PCs raise private school funding percentages to 60%. So this continues to climb relative to what public school students are receiving. We finally see the most recent increase in the percentage come in 2008 uh, under Premier Ed Stelmack, and the funding level reaches 70% of the public student grant. Uh, so this adds up in total, and there's a, these numbers get kicked around depending who you ask, but it probably most accurately, um, including special needs grants and everything else, uh, it adds up to about $7,500 so $7, in operational funding per student in 2018. So we see it move from what would be $750 in today's funds to $7,500. Um, and so that's comparable in the same year to the public amount of about $11,000 per child in the same year. So there is a gap there, um, but you know we're talking about private schools. Uh, I'll also note here when I say these numbers, I'm not talking about infrastructure funding. Private schools do not receive infrastructure funding, and so on top of that per student amount, public schools do receive infrastructure funding. So the difference between a private school and a public school in a lot of ways, beyond um, the ability to charge tuition, and in Alberta there's no cap on how much tuition a private school can charge on top of what they receive publicly. Um, private schools don't have to admit all students, they don't have to, um, and they can have very restrictive selection criteria, um, so they can kind of choose who they'd like to admit. So now we're up to four forms of publicly funded education in Alberta, and this just keeps going. So in 1994, uh, during the early years of the Klein government, we see the introduction of the fifth form, um, which is the charter school. Um, so Alberta becomes the first and remains the only province in Canada to introduce charter schools. So the charter school model comes out of the United States um, and it was originally intended to function as a kind of living lab for new ideas in education. So charter schools were, um, were brought in and they were intended to be research oriented. And the idea was that they would report their findings and if those ideas were good, that those ideas would be taken up within the public system, right? So this would become new ideas in public education. Uh, charters were to be approved for limited time periods of five years, um, and then they would be reviewed, and government at that time could renew a charter, um, could choose not to re renew it, and it could become a private school, or it could become integrated into a public school system. So at that time, and up until very recently, to establish a charter, um, a community group had to show there was a demand for the program within the community. So there had to be demonstrated desire. 
The program couldn't substantially replicate a program that existed within a local public school div division. And the group first had to approach their local public school division to ask them to establish the program. And so they could only form a charter if that request was denied. So first they had to see if the public school board would establish an alternative program. And so charters um, receive operational funding in the same way that public schools do. Um, but until quite recently, they didn't receive any infrastructure funding. Um, we saw that recently change. Uh, and this actually took place under, um, surprising to some people, the NDP. Uh, Education Minister David Egan uh, approved funding of an infrastructure project for a Calgary charter school. And so we see this thread carry through across political parties in Alberta. Um, charter schools also don't have this have the same governance model as public Catholic and Francophone boards, which have to have publicly elected trustees. So those people are elected in a general election. The electors are any qualified resident of that school board. So whether you have children in the school or not, whether you're affiliated with the school or not, you have a right to vote for school board trustees. For charter schools, um, their directors are, um, non are members of the boards of nonprofit organizations. Uh, so either societies or nonprofit companies. Um, so this is really important to note. While charters are funded operationally in the same way as public schools, their assets and governance are operated um, as independent entities under the Societies Act or the Company Act, Companies Act. So they're not in the same way owned by the public as a whole. This is one of the areas where often charter schools are talked about as um, autonomous public schools. Um, but I really think that we have to question what we mean when we say public, when it's not operated by the public and the assets of the organization are not held by the public. So um, they're also only required to meet the needs of students who fit within their mandate. They're not required to accommodate all students. And while they, can, while they may decide to support students with disabilities and can't um, technically can't discriminate, um, they can decide to deny enrollment if the charter says that that student doesn't fit within their charter or that they don't have the capacity to support the child. That can get interpreted in interesting ways. Um, so, and then finally, we have a sixth form of publicly funded education in Alberta, which is that homeschooling families in Alberta um, can access up to $850 in provincial funding. And we'll talk about some changes that happened with that too. Um, so I'll pause here a moment to talk about what's often talked about as a seventh form of education choice in Alberta, which is the alternative program. Um, so often people assume that these emerged in the 1990s in a response to the emergence of charter schools, but we actually see them begin actually much earlier than that. Um, charter schools begin to emerge in Alberta in the 1970s and 80s, and Edmonton Public Schools uh, is kind of the, the leader in the establishment of, of alternative programs in the province. Um, but those alternatives do expand significantly in the 90s and 2000s as school authorities um, respond to this increasing focus on choice in education. So as you see, this began, um, the Klein government really pushes this, this idea and alternative programs increase. Um, but you can see the results of Edmonton's earlier adoption of alternative programs in um, the different experiences of Edmonton versus Calgary around things like charter and private schools. 
Uh, for example, Calgary has twice as many charter schools as Edmonton does, and a number of those schools have multiple campuses. Uh, Edmonton has three within the city boundaries, and one of them is operated by an organization that serves some um, people dealing with poverty and homelessness. So we're, you know, it's a very different experience. Um, but alternative schools really complicate the question of what qualifies as a public school. Um, so these programs function under public boards um, in the public and Catholic systems. And they're funded in the same way as a community school, but they can charge non-instructional fees, um, which sometimes can be quite high. They can't charge tuition, but for things like hockey academy programs, they can get really expensive. Um, they also may have associated societies or nonprofit organizations that can charge very high membership fees. Um, and families may need to pay additional funds for transportation to these programs. And so while in some cases, school divisions might offer fee waivers, um, it's not mandatory for them to do so. And so alternative programs can also turn away students if the program is deemed not to have the ability to adequately support that student. And so if we look to this, some education advocates in Alberta, particularly um, support our students, have really drawn our attention to the fact that alternative programs um, are a contributor to privatization. Right? They, uh, they have entrance lotteries, high fees, uh, and geographic locations that can create barriers um, and create school seg segregation even within our public systems. So while they've often kept more families in public systems, they've also sort of fueled this idea of choice and privatization. So in essence, we've got seven forms of publicly funded education here, uh, only one of which the public community school is required to support all students. So in light of this, I argued that actually privatization of schooling was already well underway in Alberta prior to the election of the UCB government in 2019. However, uh, since their election last year, um, the UCP government has made significant moves that take Alberta further down the road towards privatization. And so what we see is during the election campaign, um, there's very clear rhetoric directed towards the expansion of choice in education. Which, you know, sort of seemed odd to a lot of people given that Alberta already had what I'd argue was the broadest range of educational choice in Canada. Um, but we need to remember that, that choice in education is really kind of coded language towards further privatization. And so this is something a lot of UC mem UCP members are pushing for. Um, at the party's 2019 policy convention, we saw a proposal created to develop a school voucher system that was developed and became party policy. And I think any of us who've ever been involved in politics know that party con policy conventions do not necessarily dictate government policy. Governments set their own policy priorities. Um, but it's interesting to note this is the direction of the party's base. Um, this government has so far stated they don't intend to change the funding formula to deliver more funds to private schools. Um, but, you know, American scholar Diane Ravitch has noted that Alberta in many ways already has a kind of voucher system. Right. We're, we're off on a model that school choice uh, advocates in the United States point towards. Um, we just don't call it a voucher system. But in essence, with the way our funding follows the student, five of the seven choices I listed earlier already function similarly to education vouchers. Right? You, can, you can take your, your per-student funding to your public school, Catholic school, you know, charter school, all kinds of choices. Um, so instead, I think what we are seeing um, government do is a shift to the expansion of charter schools in Alberta as a way to kind of create um, almost an alternative form of private school without calling it a private school. 
And so these changes are implemented largely through two pieces of legislation. So we see the Education Act and the Choice in Education Act. So I want to first talk about some of the changes that come with the Education Act. And so with this legislation, um, what we really see is changes that expand the model of competition in education through two routes. First of all, we see the ability for school boards, so our, our public publicly funded school boards to be able to offer programs outside their local boundaries if the local school board has refused to offer them. So this in a way allows school boards to begin to operate satellites in other communities that are almost like charter schools. Right? They, can, they can open a school in another, another town. So that's, that's one piece. The other piece is changes to charter school requirements. And so first of all, the Education Act removes the requirement for charter school, like people proposing a charter school, to demonstrate significant community support. So they no longer have to demand, you know, demonstrate widespread community demand for a program. And so this, this is the first piece that changes and lowers the bar to charter schools. The second piece is that the cap gets lifted. So before the Education Act, there was a limit on, of 15 on charters. We then um, saw this move to, and we only had 13 charters operating in Alberta at that time. Um, so the cap was lifted despite there not being demand even reaching that cap. So it seems like an odd choice. Um, and it was explained as intending to stimulate more charter schools, which doesn't make sense on its own. But as we start to see some of the other changes that are gonna come, um, the removal of that need to de demonstrate community support and some of the other things that come in the Choice in Education Act show us how this lowers the bar to charter school creation as, as well as opening the door to more of them. So the Choice in Education Act, which really is amending the Education Act, um, further expands the potential for charter schools and also opens up what I would consider an eighth form of choice in Alberta education. So for charters, we see... Um, elimination further of the requirement to first request the program from a public school board. So charter schools no longer have to apply to become an alternative program under a public school division first. So they don't have to dem demonstrate community support. Now they don't have to ask anyone if, if they'll create it as a public option. It also adds a specific category called vocational charter schools, um, which aren't subject to the same non-competition rules as those were set out as those that are set out for other types of charters, meaning that vocational charters can duplicate public school programming. Additionally, charters get exempted from municipalities joint use and planning agreements, which seems like a weird niche thing to talk about, um, but it's actually really important. So generally when a school is built for a public school board, it's um, built on municipal reserve land and that's public land or it's land sometimes owned by the board, but again, it's public land and the building that's built becomes a public asset. And so when that school building is no longer needed by a division, it returns into public hands, right? So here in Edmonton, it would revert to the, the city of Edmonton's control. Um, so joint use and planning agreements generally have restrictions on what happens to that property next. Usually it has to be, you know, um, returned to pu public use or public benefit. Um, but now the public, funding for infrastructure for charters has come into being, charters can receive public funding to build what are in essence private buildings. So the building that a charter owns is owned by that organization, that nonprofit, that isn't in the same way a public entity. And so 
Um, you know, public education advocate Barb, Barb Silda has noted that in the U.S., many charter schools have substantial real estate holdings, and real estate is often how profit is made in charter schools. And so it's too early to know what this is going to mean here, but, you know, there is a concern that some, in some ways, like what we've seen happen in the long-term care industry, um, we may see significant real estate interest beginning to move into the charter school market. Um, it's a bit obscure, but um, it's interesting to note. And I have just lost my notes. There we go. So on to the next new choice, which is unsupervised homeschooling. And so prior to the Choice in Education Act, um, homeschoolers in Alberta had homeschooling had to be conducted under the supervision of a certificated teacher. Um, and they would evaluate the student's progress twice a year. Alberta's now added the option of unsupervised homeschooling. Um, as someone who's an advocate for children's rights, this option concerns me. Um, some homeschooling parents are excellent teachers. I'm not going to deny there are some parents who do a great job of this. But with nobody checking in, we leave children really vulnerable to receiving little to no meaningful education. So we've got a government that's focused on parental rights and education, but it's important to remember that un under the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, children have the right to an education that meets their full potential, and the state has an obligation to protect that right. And so with no accountability for parents, um, I think we leave some children at serious risk of being left behind um, if we allow parental rights to fully override the rights of the child. And so I think this brings me to the final legislative change I really want to talk about, which seems trivial to a lot of people, but I think represents really legislative entrenchment of an ideological direction we've seen in Alberta for quite some time. And so when we look at the Choice in Education Act, it enshrines Section 26.3 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights into the preamble of the Education Act. Um, so for those who might spend a little less time with human rights documents than I do, Section 26 is about the right to an education. Um, so 26.3 reads, parents have a prior right to choose the kind of education that will be given, that shall be given to their children. And so normally I think protecting things from human rights documents is a really good thing, but there is a subversion happening here when you only explicitly recognize Section 3, which is about parental rights without the other two sections sections, which are about the recipient of that education, the child. So the other two aspects, the first of which is um, about the right to education and states that education shall be free, at least in the elementary stages, and will be compulsory, right? So elementary education is compulsory. Um, and section two, and then add some additional pieces about higher education. Section two, um, education shall be directed to the full development of the human personality and the strengthening of respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms. It shall promote understanding, tolerance, and friendship among all nations, racial or religious groups, and shall further the activities of the United Nations for the maintenance of peace. It's interesting to read those two in balance. So the choice to protect this section and also to not refer to the education protections in the Convention on the Rights of the Child is troubling. When we talk about rights in education, to focus on, the, on parental rights over the rights of the child is ideological. How are we doing for time? Um, we're good for time. We've got a couple of more minutes. Um, Great. 
we're almost there. Uh, so um, I'll note that Canadian scholar Anne McGilvery says that um, childhood is bent to the adjudic adjudication of rights in the Supreme Court of Canada. And I actually think that this effect extends beyond decisions of the Supreme Court. It shapes how Canadian legislators and policymakers and citizens understand and interpret rights questions when it comes to the rights of children. And so these interpretations are sometimes very strange. People believe that the Charter of Rights and Freedoms doesn't apply to children, uh, that parental rights override children's rights, or the children are, um, you know, don't have rights in schools because schools act in loco parentis. And these are really rooted in some, some deep ideological positions and historical positions. So I think this drive in Alberta towards parental rights comes from a convergence of two forces in Alberta politics, which are a libertarian orientation towards property rights. Um, Alberta is notable as a province that has not one but two pieces of legislation oriented towards protecting property rights. And a socially conservative interpretation of children as property of their parents, which comes from roots in Roman ideas of patria potestas that make their way into canon law and then sort of into church practice. And so legally, children hold rights separate from their parents. Um, but these forces in Alberta have created a really strong orientation on parental rights that has led to this push for choice in education. And these two forces converge with a third global political force, which is neoliberalism, with this focus on free markets and individual choice. And so what, if you believe really strongly in the idea that parental rights are the primary rights in education, and then you believe that individual choice within a market is the best way to organize this society, then you arrive at this place where ever-increasing educational choice um, is is related to government's role to act as a service provider to individuals rather than as government is something in which we all participate in it as citizens whose role is to protect and um, provide for the public good. And so this is at the heart of it. Education is always political, uh, despite claims that government is depoliticizing education. And so I think we need to ask ourselves what public education is for. And so I think we need to look at the role of education in what we call social reproduction. Schooling is, as a function of the state, a way of creating future generations of citizens. It is always ideological in nature. Uh, and in this, we have to think about this fragmentation and privatization of our education as reflective of and further driving towards this fragmented, privatized, and atomized society. We're in a time of growing income inequality, social inequity, and challenges to democratic systems. And so I think as we think about this in Alberta, we need to think about, you know, how do we come back, if we want a democratic future, how do we come back to the idea of more democratic and inclusive schools? And I'll, I'll leave it there and we can go to some questions. Okay, thank you very much for your um, excellent presentation. Very interesting. I, uh, I learned a lot today. Um, our first question is from Jeffrey Cap, and he has quite a preamble. So, um, Bear with me. Because of our uncertainty about this entire year, we chose to transfer our young son to homeschool for at least this year. Our older children received high quality education to grade five. Our son is done by 1 p.m., sometimes noon. All our kids learned to read by phonics. They joined us 
in cringing at the results of the poor job done by public schools. A generation of students, many of whom have poor reading, writing, and math skills. Given that public schools are consistently failing to meet high standards, and then in brackets, students in China are better at English, don't you think that parents should have the freedom to choose something better for their children, what they learn about sex, including private schools and charter schools? Question mark. Okay, well, I, I actually think it's a bit of a myth that, that public school students aren't performing. So when we look to the Alberta education system uh, and we look to international PISA results, um, students in Alberta perform um, to some of the very top in the world. So currently in the most recent PISA results, um, Alberta students tested, uh, ranked at third in the world in science and literacy and eighth in the world in mathematics. And so of course, there's always room to grow, but I think as um, as a province being top 10 in the world, I, I, I want to push back on this idea that we have low literacy and low results for, for students coming out of public schools. Um, I think it's also important to know that in Alberta, even when you enroll in a public school, you're, um, you have protection under um, legislation to withdraw your child from sexual health education if you choose to do so. Um, parents aren't forced into these systems or these structures and so you know I know that there are some parents who do relatively well in homeschooling but um, you know it's really important to note that the vast majority of Alberta students are in some form of publicly funded school it's more than 90% of our students are in the the major public systems and um, those children are performing exceptionally well internationally. Um, Alberta universities perform at some of the top levels in the world. The majority of their students are coming out of Alberta. And I don't think that Alberta would have had the economic success that we've had without having a strong public education system. So I just really want to push back on some of those myths about public education because it really isn't borne out by the data. Our next question comes from um, Ian Hurdle. My concern is the removal of public from education system on August 15, for what reason? Does this mean a decline in the resources to the truly public schools? Should there be a floor of, say, 70% of all schools funded by the government be public? Hmm. Yeah, the, the removal of public from the names of public school divisions sort of mandatory removal was definitely a concern for many public school boards um you know we um not all boards had public in their official names i know um you know the legal operating name for edmonton public schools hasn't had public in it for quite some time it's just edmonton school division but that said um, a push to remove that name from the school divisions definitely was of concern um, it's sort of a symbolic shift that perhaps reflects the ideological position. Um, you know, it depends on the community. Um, I think in Edmonton, the majority of students, um, so Edmonton Catholic schools would be about 40% the size of Edmonton public schools. Um, so in most communities, the public school division is much larger. What's interesting is what will happen with the Theodore case. Um, and uh, as that moves into the Supreme Court and whether public funding for non-Catholic students attending Catholic schools will continue to be um, 
constitutionally allowable is going to be an interesting question. That's a case in Saskatchewan, but because the Saskatchewan Act and the Alberta Act are identical, um, that may affect things here. And so uh, in, um, in much of Canada, Catholic schooling is uh, privately funded. So we'll um, we'll see what that happen what happens with that here. But um, it's interesting to note still even then that the more than ninety percent of families in Alberta are choosing public um, some form of public schooling. Okay, um, our next question comes from. Thank you. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Do you think granting more parental rights incrementally, do you think that granting more parental rights incrementally may be shifting the purpose of education away from the overall common good? You know, I think in many ways it is. And, and that's not to say that parents don't have rights in education. Um, but I think we need to, to draw our attention back to who should be at the center of education, which is which is children, right? And that common good of the future of our of our society as a whole, right? And so, um, as we continue to move towards a very individualized orientation um, through sort of the lens and the mechanism of parental rights, um, we do move away from an orientation on common good and that uh, that broader benefit to to children and that next generation of citizens. Um, and then Claude Peterson has a second question. In the relentless pursuit of greater choice and general disregard for the consequences of segregating students by income, religion, ability, or interest, what could be the long-term problems? Yeah, well, and we see, you know, we see some of those problems in our society right now, right? We have, um, we have increasing... Um, income inequality and social stratification already taking place and when you look to one of the things that has sort of in many countries been a major contributor to the growth of a broad middle class right which is sort of one of those measures of of how much equality is is you know how many what that reduction in income inequality often comes about through having very very strong public education systems that are universally accessible Right, you create um, a kind of social equality. Um, you offer um, greater equality of opportunity, um, more opportunity for um, focusing on equity. Right, uh, offering those opportunities to to help students catch up. Right, that access to education is really important. And education, public education systems are often also a place where we address other areas of inequality, right, where we have um, school nutrition programs, health programs, all kinds of other things that um, help address those questions of inequality. And so when what starts to happen is when some families start to opt out of those systems, um, you get um, you get segregation, you create social segregation, and you can see that in communities where um, you know, particular kinds of families all tend to go to private schools together, right? You create different networks, you create a lack of um, sort of social understanding of people who are different from you, and you don't um, you don't create that sense of community. And I, I feel like if we all live in a society together, there's there's positive benefit to us going to school together, right? Our children learn to live together when they go to school together. 
My next question comes from uh, Laurie Schultz. If charter schools can select students, and then in brackets, uh, deny entry to high need students, etc., is this taken into account in provincial testing? If public schools have a disproportional number of high need students, Yeah, it's, it's not generally taken into account. Um, so what, what happens is really interesting is when you start to um, look at comparisons of, you know, apples to apples kind of kids. Um, so often when you look at rankings from organizations like the Fraser Institute, you'll see um, some very expensive private schools near the top of the list. And what happens there is we're not sort of looking at what are the comparators. So we know socioeconomic status is a huge um driver of student achievement, um, that there are other factors. And so when you compare kids who enter, for example, between some of the elite private schools and public schools in similar geographic areas, so I've seen comparators out of Calgary, uh, if you look at students who enter those schools in grade 10 with similar grades, so say they come in at an 80% and they come from this, a similar socioeconomic background, similar levels of wealth and, and parental opportunity, um, kids who come in with those same factors tend to, on average, perform the same or better in public schools, right? And so what we, what these sort of aggregate rankings don't do is look at who is being tested, who's involved, um, you know, and how students are performing, right? It's, it's often those factors for student performance get left out. So absolutely, um, for schools that have a higher level of community need um, that is reflected in test results. And it's not because those schools are bad schools, but because students are dealing with different circumstances and situations, don't have the same access to parental support, tutoring, all of those different things that some families can provide and other families can't. Jeffrey Cap, um, who had the long question earlier on, uh, says, and this is a comment, but I'd like you to, um, if you wish to um, connect on that. Um, she did not answer whether parents have the right of choice for their children. Socialists thinks children are state property and Sterling is giving a socialist viewpoint. Well, parents, you know, parents have choices in a lot of ways. The question is whether you have the right to have somebody else pay for your choice, right? So if we look at Ontario, for example, Ontario has a similar level of private school participation to Alberta. But in Alberta, we pay for parents to make that choice. And in Ontario, they don't, right? And so it's the same way if, if you know, I'm a, at the university and if my university library doesn't have a book and I can't get it through interlibrary loan or another mechanism and I want that book, you know, I can request it, but if the library is not able to provide it for me, I can pay for the book myself, but I can't expect the university library to buy the book for me. I can ask, but they may not provide it, right? And so um, in the same way, all of our public systems, you know, if we wish to go outside of them, we can choose to do so. But the reality is, is there's a limit to how many choices that the state should be obligated to pay for. And so, you know, choice exists and choice exists in lots of places. The question here is really who should be paying for your choice? Our next question comes from Bev Mendel. Chartered schools for specific disabilities take students with, in essence, vouchers. These funds 
would be better used in public schools where special funds could hire EAs who could help more. Uh, do you care to comment? Yeah, I think, you know, we've seen the creation of some um, charter and private schools that are specifically focused on, on higher need populations. And um, I think, you know, I really think in many ways if those programs are really beneficial, they should be available through the public system um, to, to all children with disabilities if they're effective programming. And so one of the things we've seen that's been a huge problem in Alberta is the underfunding of inclusive education. Um, it's massively underfunding. I know Edmonton Public alone uh, tops up their inclusive, the inclusive education budget with $24 million out of general revenues in many years um, on top of what the province funds for it. And it's because it's very underfunded. And so what we're starting to see is parents who have the financial ability um, opting out and going to private or charter models where they can access supports and um, and really that is it's reflective of that dysfunction within the public system where um, where supports for student with dis students with disabilities have been underfunded and under supported for many years so um, you know inclusion in education is a good thing and uh, but if it's not supported I understand why families with resources are opting out but what that does again is it leaves children with children with disabilities whose families can't access those choices um, without the same resources and supports. So, yeah, you're right. It is it is a call to, to increase the resources in the public. Okay. Our next question is from Bev Mundell, our second question. With the UCP attack on public health care, education and unions, private schools as part of a larger corporate plan, your comments, please. Yeah, I mean, one of the things with both private and charter schools is um, in most cases, their teachers there are not unionized and they, in many cases, have lower levels of pay. Um, and um, in some cases, their standards are not the same. Um, so we are seeing, um, unfortunately, yeah, that, that charter and private schools are used as kind of a roundabout way around um you know education workers unions whether that's teachers educational assistants things like that and um you know it's a it's a challenge both in terms of unionization but also participation in the professional body um of the ata um and those other those other areas of activity so yeah no it is it's definitely an attack on on um unionization and education as well our next question comes from Trevor Page. Do you think education should be a federal responsibility? Canadians first and provincial residents second. Yeah, I think there are some interesting conversations to have about that. Um, when we look to the US, um, you know, education is federal rather than provincial. I'm not sure that's remedied the problems in the US. We see, you know, even further fragmentation in many places. Um, but, um, you know, there, there are conversations about sort of the variations in education systems across Canada. Um, I've been a believer for a while that we need sort of a united, if not one sort of federal responsibility for education, at least, um, some more national level work on advocacy for public education. Uh, we often see the same sort of processes happening in education in different provinces across the country. And I think if we were talking to each other more, we'd probably see it coming. 
Um, another option would be potentially transfers like we see in health at the federal level to education. And we saw perhaps the first step into that recently with the decision of the federal government to provide uh, provincial governments with funding um, for public for well for all schools in and up in Alberta, but um, for coronavirus response in schools. And so we've seen that uh, we saw that take place. And I, I wonder if we will begin to see more of that happening, um, particularly if provinces continue to sort of underfund public education systems. But right now, under the Constitution, that's provincial responsibility and changing that gets to be really sticky when we're talking about constitutional amendments. So. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. As you mentioned, the NDP government funded infrastructure for Calgary Charter School. Do you see the current government continuing that policy? Yeah, I, I expect that will continue. Yeah, I think I think we'll see that we'll, once that door is opened, it's difficult to close it. Um, you know, we'll see that continue. I think we'll see probably a return to the practice of um, forcing school boards also to transfer property for little to no money. Um, so we saw uh, a mandate under um, the previous PC government for school boards to transfer closed public school buildings on, into the ownership of, of charter schools um, for very minimal costs. And so I think we'll see that trend perhaps return as well. So. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. How can the ideological and political narrative be moved from children as parental property versus state property to, as you say, focus on the child's education and education as building a cohesive community? Oh, well, you're at the heart of my dissertation work now, which is really about um, how we have, we're in a tension point, I think, in how we think about children's rights, and we have been for sort of since the initial international documents on children's rights emerged in the early 20th century and we saw a shift um, through that time from the 1920s on on solely protection rights for children to the the um and we're still shaking out what it means for us but the un um, crc which adds a number of rights for children like the right to expression and uh and you know the right to assembly, the right to a number of, you know, the right to participation, a number of things that are what we would consider sort of beyond protection rights, their positive rights, their rights um, to things. And so that is still working its way through how we think about our systems and how we think about the rights of the children. And it exists in a funny tension point because we often think of rights as related to, still within this old idea of being related to rationality and and property and a bunch of other things, which when we talk about rights for children, it sort of puts that intention. And so, you know, how we shift, I think it's part of a broader social shift. You know, we've, and it's part of, I mean, I feel challenged in this because it's the what's next of, of neoliberalism, which seems to be in a state of collapse right now, um, you know, with with the number of liberal democracies sort of falling apart, um, the shift to liber illiberal democracy in parts of the world, um, the collapse of these structures, the what's next um, is really a question. Um, I find myself more and more looking towards um, political theorists like Joan Tronto who talk about um, recentering our politics on an ethics of care, 
rather than sort of on economic relations that recentering our politics on social relations to each other and that doesn't mean economies don't matter um but but not centering our politics on those things it's um you know i wish i had a better answer to this but i i think we are on um we are in a political transition right now with the rise of populism uh, and a number of other things taking place and so where we land is is really a challenge but that's sort of what i'm doing as a scholar is trying to think about the what's next and how we reorient our thinking about um, our relations to each other by by thinking about our relations um, in education and and the lives and the rights of children our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. Is a safety factor high school matriculation, which every student must pass through, whether through whether homeschooling, charter, public, etc. So certain scientific evidence cannot be avoided. I'm trying. I'm, I'm not sure what the question is in there, but I, it's yeah, it's an interesting comment. Um, yeah, there's, uh, there's, and of course, you know, once a child is 16, they're not required to continue attending high school. And so that's, that's an interesting question as to what will take place with that, with, um, with the move away to allow unsupervised homeschooling. So, Laurie Schultz, are you aware of any data or reports on the breakdown of public dollar amounts used to fund private assets of charter schools over time, and then in brackets, i.e. specific dollar amounts? Uh, I haven't done that breakdown. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if anyone has gone in and done a deep analysis of it here in Alberta. Um, I would probably, you know, look to, I'd have to look through and see if you know, it's it's likely something that organizations like the Parkland Institute or, um, you know, maybe SOS may have started to undertake, but it's it, I'm not aware of any specific data on that. The um, the process of, of providing public infrastructure funding to charter schools is very, very new. And so I think, you know, I, I think there's been more work done on that in the U.S. probably than here. Our next question is Knut Peterson. What are your thoughts read a current curriculum consultation, for example, an all-male advisory group and other hand-picked individuals? Yeah, there are some concerns. In One of the concerns I had actually was in the initial curriculum advisory panel, so not this more recent sort of, um, this more recent group of, of people who are experts, which their expertise is sort of questionable, but uh, the earlier group where a number of people who were appointed to what was ostensibly a curriculum panel were not people with expertise in curriculum. They were, um, you know, when you looked at, at people like Ashley Burner being appointed there, they really were um, advocates for school privatiz privatization within um, school reform movements, right? And so it seemed like a way to gather together a number of those experts under the guise of a curriculum panel. And even when we looked at what came out in the ministerial order on student learning, a lot of it was not particularly curriculum oriented, right? It was about restructuring the system itself. The more recent panel is definitely troubling, um, not only, um, you know, in the gender makeup of the panel, you know, I'd like to remind people that um, the McKinnon report 
was led by a woman and, and that didn't affect the outcome of that report to be particularly different, right? Um, you know, we can't rely on, on gender or other forms of, of diversity to, um, to necessarily guarantee we'll get different outcomes. That said, it, it is concerning when a, a group that is as um, consistent, we'll say, as that group is in terms of its makeup or as, as uniform in its makeup is appointed and, and definitely some of the ideological positions of people in that panel are very, very concerning. Um, when you look at particularly some of the things that have been stated in public by um, Chris Champion, but also some other members of that panel, um, even in terms of their desire to return to things like, um, you know, sort of a classical Euro-Western canon only in education, um, which I think the advisor for English has done a, quite a bit of writing on uh, desiring that or, or other orientations on education among some of those experts that really run counter to everything we know about how children actually learn and develop. Um, it's very concerning because there's there's very little expertise there in, in the actual developmental or educational needs of children. Our next question comes from Bev Mundell. Are we headed for 100% funding of private schools? And do you think the public would be outraged if they knew their taxes pay for schools that become private assets? Um, yeah, I mean, I think this government has stated they're not planning on increasing the private school amount. Um, that said, I mean, that that can change at any point in time. And the minister has actually mostly said under my leadership, it won't happen. But who's to say what might happen under a different minister? Also, I think this push to um, lower the bar for charters and expand the opportunity to create them is kind of an end run around that, right? Because charters already get 100%, and if you can um, lower the bar, reduce the standards, and increase the opportunity to create them, um, then you kind of create a secondary form of, of quasi-private school, right? But it's a publicly funded private school. Um, the second piece of that is that, um, you know, I, I'm actually surprised that there hasn't been more outcry about, I don't think most people realize how much public funding goes to private school, goes to, to private schools and even to all forms of education. Most people think that they pay for education solely out of their property taxes um, and that the box they check on their property taxes actually affects where their funding goes. That's not actually true. Um, your property tax funding all goes into the same provincial pot now. It doesn't matter what box you check. Hmm. It's, it's an artifact of when school boards had taxation powers. Um, so it goes into the same provincial pot and then it's topped up substantially from provincial revenues. So even if you don't um, pay property taxes for a particular school, um, you're still paying a lot out of your provincial taxes. And the other thing to know is that pro education property tax amount only it does not at all go towards uh, charter schools or private schools. Those are funded entirely out of the provincial tax um, budget, right? So those come entirely out of provincial taxes. So I don't think people realize um, how much all of us are paying. Uh, and the other thing they don't understand is that for a family with two children, what they pay in property tax and even in provincial tax does not anywhere near come close to the cost of their child's education, right? So 
Um, you know, if you think of a public student for um, simply for um, operating budget, operating funding alone, about $11,000. If you have a couple of children, that's $22,000. And you can start to see very few families are paying that much in, I would assume, in property taxes every year. Um, and even when we look to private school students, if you take that $7,500, if you're a, a family with two children, you're talking $15,000 a year. Um, so that is, those, our education system is paid for by all of us. And so when people say, I'd like to take my education property tax amount and be able to do what I want with it for school, I don't think people realize just how much all of us as a community and as a society pay for schools. And that's important, right? Having an educated population is uh, a benefit to all of us. It's really important. You know, it's uh, it's a social good to have a well-educated population. But um, you know, people, I don't think people really realize it and they don't understand it. And as well, I think this orientation towards choice and privatization that's sort of been pushed for a long time. People may not sort of recognize the damage that's being done when we start to, to atomize our society to the extent that there's a push towards doing. Our last question today comes from Knut Peterson. Do you think the COVID pandemic plays into the idea of more privatization of education in Alberta? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've seen a number of things emerge during the pandemic. Um, we've seen everything, like trampoline schools and dance academies and things like that offering um, programming with um, tutors so they're not qualified teachers they're usually you know they may be people with some background in education but they're not not certificated teachers um, supporting students um, sometimes those students are accessing their online learning programs through their public school division because public school divisions are offering online learning right now but sometimes those students are enrolled in homeschooling programs all kinds of things and so you're seeing that emerge um, I think you're going to see, you've seen parents, some in Alberta, more in Ontario, but move to this pod system where a small group of parents hires a teacher independently to operate kind of a, almost a mini private school for a small group of students. Um, and I think we're going to see that continue. And crisis creates opportunity um, for governments to act, um, you know, on, on restructuring systems. And so I think that the, the COVID-19 pandemic is both opening up the opportunity for privatization, but it also is exposing the deep inequalities that already exist in our system, where some families can choose to stay home with a child who's doing online learning and can get access to their alternative program and everything through that system. And other families are struggling, um, having to send their children to school out of economic need, um, having to... Um, you know, try to uh, get their kids to school so they can access a nutrition program and the supports that a, that community desperately needs. And so it's it's not a, and for students with special needs, especially, I think it's exposed a lot of the cracks in our system. So, yeah, I think like everything this pandemic has done, it's shown us where our structures are already weakened and, and need, a, need us to prop them up. Okay, we have um, Laurie Schultz, Knut Peterson, and Bev Mundell all thanking you for uh, your presentation to, today. 
um, to inform us on this important topic. And Bev Mandel wishes you good luck in your interesting PhD dissertation. And I would also like to echo on behalf of SACPA, thank you very much for this presentation. Before we end the live stream, um, is there anything you'd like people to just take home as a final thought? Um, yeah, I think, again, I'd like us to, to remember, I mean, as much as a pandemic um, creates crisis that can sometimes be used to dismantle um, our structures, I think it also gives us an opportunity to rethink how we do things better in terms of a public, you know, I think it's allowed us to rethink how we approach long-term care and these other systems in our society and think about how privatization has created deep problems. And I hope it will also allow us to reorient our thinking around education back towards what is a public education that serves and supports all of us in our community. So, thanks. Excellent, and I hope um, everybody will join us next week, October 1st, for uh, a topic on more coal, fewer parks, the futures of Alberta's Rocky Mountains, presented by Katie Morrison. Thanks everybody for joining, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>